Good morning. Hi, my name is Ian Benson. I'm an elder here at Bruce City Church, and I get to, that means a few things, but one of them is I get to preach every once in a while. Um, Randy and I are lead pastors in Kansas City at a conference, uh, and then he'll be on vacation next week, so I get the, the fun privilege and honor to speak to you today. Um, before I do that, let me just pray for us. Is that okay? Uh, Father God, it is good to be called your sons and your daughters. It is good to be sought after, um, uh, even when we can't really comprehend what that feels like or um, how we are supposed to know that. Um, We stand here today and say, um, I want to know you more. Actually, I want to I want to um, experience you more. I want to, um, I want to be assured of um, your faithfulness more than I ever have been. I pray this from the bottom of my heart, um, personally, and 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 on behalf of of all the folks here. I say, um, man, we want to we want to know how truly faithful you are, God. Uh, yeah, it's in your name we pray. Amen. I am, uh, I wouldn't say I'm the, like I would never call myself the best husband, (laughs) right? Like it's just not, I mean, first of all, it kind of sounds like bragging. Um, I don't know, my wife would probably say something like that. Uh, I'm trying not to be self-deprecating, but also truthful. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of a, it's kind of, I've made, I've made mistakes in, in the past, um, there are certain things about, you know, me and, in my marriage. But one of the things I always tell my wife is whenever I screw up is I, I kind of always bring out this line like, I mean, you, you knew what you were getting though, right? Like the, you knew, like you knew what you signed up for. Like you didn't find out anything like, oh, didn't see that about my husband before I married. Like, so I, I pull that out every once in a while. And as a result, or as an example, I should say, um, I'll, I'll just give you one little example. Now, it's not unknown that I really like sports. I just, I like sports. She knew this before she married me. Like, it wasn't a secret. I didn't, like, keep it hidden from her until we got married, and then I was like, surprise, I'm weird. I'm a big-time Brewer fan. But, like, I, show, I showed it to her. Um, and I'm better now than I used to be. Like, I'll just say that. But there was one moment before we got married when we were, when we were dating, and it was in that period of time of dating where you like, um, what's, the, what's the phrase, I've been out of the loop for a little bit, like the, the DTR, is that what it's called? You guys know what the, D, the, the, define the relationship period of time, where like you're dating for long enough and then, and then, and then you're like, okay, is this thing real, is this happening, what's like, what? we were right in that stage and so we were getting ready to go, um, she was going to meet my parents for the first time and, and like, which also happened to be the same time, like, my grandparents were in town, and my sisters were in town, and my brother, and, like, some aunts and uncles, like, a lot of family just happened to be in town at that very point in time. It also happened to be this point in time where I knew I was going to need to go back there, because I had some things going on. My parents live in Port Washington, just, like, 30 30 miles from here, so um, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to be in Port that day. Oh, all my family's going to be there. You should come and meet everybody, right? That was my, my thinking, that was my thinking. I was like, oh, this will be perfect. And Chris was like, yeah, sure, a- a- absolutely, sounds good. And then 
like, as we're making plans, and, and she's like, well, what, what, what is it that you're going up there for? I was like, oh, see, I have a fantasy football draft that is um, at that time, so I'll just go up there, drop you off, and then go to my, my fantasy football draft. And then, like, I mean, the timing could not be better, right? Like, the timing is just perfect. And it wasn't until about, like, now, if you know anything about fantasy football drafts, and this is a live fantasy football draft, so it's, like, all 12 dudes, like, together in a room. And so it can take, so there's, like, a lot of breaks and talking. So it's not like an online one where the computer, like, makes you pick, right? So it's just, it goes on for a long time. And it wasn't until about four and a half to five hours into it where I was like, I think this might have been a mistake. I don't think I should have done that. And so I kind of like hurried up and I think I even forfeited like my last pick or two where I just like panic came over me. I was like, oh shoot, I should not. I don't think that was good. And so I, get, I drive over to my parents' house. I get there and my now wife, she did end up marrying me. She, she's there like playing cards with, with family members and I get like two steps into the door. I mean, two steps into the door and my two sisters just like, they're five and 11 years younger than me like just corner me and are like, what are you doing? I can't believe you sent her, you're all by yourself and then you just left, what are you, some kind of an idiot? Like, and just like reamed me a new one. And I was like, I know, I know. By this time I was already like, as I'm driving over there realizing I am not, this is bad. Like this could be bad. She, she forgave me. And, but so, even that, so now whenever I'm like super into whatever, you know, the Bucks are playing really well right now and I'm trying to like temper expectations and all this kind of stuff. But I'm like, you knew what you were getting into when you married me. Like you knew this about me. Like this isn't, this isn't new. I was, I was, uh, the, the word I like to use for this kind of thing is uh, fixated. I was just like fixated on that draft. So much so that it didn't even occur to me <laughs> about like the thoughts and feelings of other human beings that might be involved in me making these plans, right? Like that was, that was weird. That's bad. It's not good. I mean, there's, this is kind of a goofy example of fixation, but let's face it, being fixated on something could be rather unhealthy if we, if we let it. Another word for fixation that I, uh, I was thinking when I was thinking about this recently was um, like this idea of being relentless. Do you know what I mean? Like it's one thing to be fixated and like focused, but it's another thing to actually put into plan and set into motion things in or along with the fixation. Like you could be fixated on something but never actually do anything around it, good or bad, sports or unhealthy, healthy, whatever, like and never, act, you know. So I, I feel like re being relentless is a step further than just being fixated. I don't know. I mean, it depends on what context you're using these words, but that's, that's how I'm seeing it. God, God, I believe, is relentless. And I think he puts some of that in our hearts, actually. I think there's actually a, a, a part of being human is being uh, relentless. Now, there's a whole bunch of questions that pop up, right, with that. Like, what does that mean, relentless towards what? Or in regards to what, how... I think God, though, is relentless, and I think it's important to understand how and why, towards what end. What does that, what does that mean to be relentless? We're in, like Shelley said, we're starting a new sermon series today for the summer called Revealed, God's Relentless Plan for Redemption. Going through the book of Romans, and the, the reason we, we call it that is because we, 
as we look through the book of Romans, what we find is that the Apostle Paul, who wrote it to the church in Rome, he had never even been to Rome before, but he sent this, this letter, and in it, he's sort of summarizing the, the whole of the gospel. And there's a very big assumption that is made when he writes it, and that is that all of his readers are well aware of the history up to that point of God and his people, especially his Jewish friends in the church, right? These are Christians that he's writing to, but there's this assumption. Now, sometimes we miss that assumption. We just dive right into Romans, and we look at four spiritual laws and, 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 and the Roman road and, and, and all these kinds of things. But Paul had in his mind, the foundation Paul was coming in on, and what his readers had as a foundation was the whole story of God and his people, that it was, it, was, it was at the tip of their tongue. It was at the front of their mind. It was, it was everything. It was part of their identity. It was part of, it wasn't just like they took a history class. It was actually part of who they were. It was this whole story, all these events that they had been taught and learned and recited and told and then, been, and then taught other people over and over and over for generations. It was part of who they were. And so what we're going to do today is we're going we're gonna to kind of unpack the, the beginnings of this sum, uh, series, this sermon series, and look at these different components of what it means to be, how, how we've seen God be relentless, how we've seen him uh, have a plan, how we've seen him um, pursue redemption. We're going to unpack that a little bit, and we're going to do it by just rehashing the story of God and his people. So we're not even going to talk about Romans very much today, to be honest with you. <laughs> I'll get to it a little bit at the end. But we're just going to look at how, what are the characteristics of God? How does God deal with his people? Why is he relentless? In what ways does that look like? And then, and then we'll get into how that actually plays out. So let's look at, first, first thing, why is God relentless? What is it that he's relentless about? Is he relentless? Is God a relentless sports fan? Is he relentless at... Like, what, what, what is God's passion? Why, why does he do the things he do? What do we see in the scriptures? Well, first of all, we see that there's an ideal. There's a design. There's a plan, even, if you will. A plan by, in which God cre- uh, gives humanity this created uh, sort of commission. We see it right at the beginning. We see right at the beginning that there's this uh, vocation, that our job as humans, we're actually given a job as humans. That's, that's part of our job. See, he, he creates everything, and we see this ordering, right? We're like, there's this chaos in the world. And this is just Genesis 1 stuff. There's chaos in the world, and he separates the land from the sea, and we see all the, you know, he's doing all these things, and he's the, the birds. And then, and then he does this weird thing, and he picks this one aspect of his creation, humans, and he says, I actually am going to put you, like, above all of the other stuff and give you a role in stewarding it, in seeing that it flourishes, in seeing that it... Uh, actually comes to life. I have made it good, God says, and essentially he says, and now through you, I'm going to make it better. It's going to be a better world because of you. I want you to fulfill the world, prosper, flourish, right? So hu- humans have this vocation, this job. This is, what we're, this is what we're supposed to do. You see right there in 128, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. And so, but it's not just... Uh, like ruling over the, the natural world, which is a lot of times, like, like we're cosmic zookeepers or something, you know, like, like God just like created us all to be zookeepers and that's like our job, like just take care of the animals and don't let them kill each other or whatever. Like that's, it's more than that, I think. 
There's actually something deeper in it that, that God's wisdom and his stewardship and his love is supposed to come through us onto the created world. And that verse up there points to what this is called. What we call this is the image of God. That we're created to be in the image of God. And see, being created in the image of God means it's not just being a cosmic zookeeper and taking care of the world, as important as that is, right? Creation care, but hear this as a word for today. Creation care means caring for your, your brethren, <laughs> your brothers and sisters, right? That's also creation care because they are also part of the created order, aren't they? Our, our relationships are actually part of the created order. And so when God creates human beings, he doesn't just want us to be good stewards of, you know, like just be a bunch of tree huggers and, you know, don't, don't pollute, give a hoot. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> but also part of creation care is loving one another and, reflect, and reflecting the image of God onto the people around us. I'm talking about the vocation of being a human being here. This is, this is what it means to be human. It's an ideal that God created that he had a vision for, a love for, and he is relentless about it. He's fixated on it. If we start summarizing all of the scriptures, we see that the image of God is at the core of what he expects of humanity. And it's not... There's a bunch of things you could say about image of God. There's things have been written that's the whole idea of Imago Dei, and I mean, there's just beautiful writings out there. I'll, I'll just give you one little metaphor that I, I like that helps me to understand what this means. Helps me sort of drill it down to, like, what does this mean for me in my life? And I like to think about humans as little mirrors that are angled, if you will, so as to catch the image of God and then reflect it back onto creation. This is what it means to be the image of God. So that means, and th this, is, this is the order in which God has made it. We see, if we start to look at, at early Genesis, that he, how should I do this? Right? What does this look like? I could just impose my will onto creation, but he says, no, that's no, that's no fun. He, he creates humanity, and then he says, through humanity, I will impose my wisdom and my love and my stewardship, and my guidance, right? Do you see, do you see the, the metaphor there, how it, and then, in return, all of creation comes back through us to God, and that's what we call worship. And so in one direction, we have our vocation as human beings to love and care for all of creation, and then in the other direction, we have worship, where all the glory goes then back to God through us, and this is what we do this is why we gather, this is why we sing, this is why we pray, this is why we, how we live a life of worship, is by reflecting the goodness in the cre of the creation back onto him. And so this is what it means to be the image of God, to be sort of this reflecting object as people, this angled mirror, this is our vocation, this is our identity, this is at the core of what it means to be human. And man, God is relentless in it. Okay, but how is he relentless? What does this look like? Well, if we just keep reading through the scriptures, if we, just start, if we just start walking through it, we start to see some things happen. Now, something goes wrong. God has this ideal, something goes wrong. We see in Genesis 3 that humans forfeit this vocation as image bearers. The humans say, I actually don't want to be 
the reflecting surface from you onto creation and from creation back to you as, as a form of worship. I don't want that job anymore. I want to be the one who determines what's good and what's bad, and I just want to reflect myself onto creation. And so in Genesis 3, the mirror gets tipped, and it's just us onto creation, and, we, and back and forth and back and forth, and it begins a cycle, and it's a cycle that leads to death because now the life giver has been taken out of the equation. I'm just, this is like Genesis 1, 2, 3 stuff. And now a cycle of death has started to occur. But, and, and stay, let's just stay there for a minute. You all, all, all of this is review, all of you are like, yeah, 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 I know we're talking about sin and then redemption and salvation and we're, you know, we're going all down this road. But stop here just for a second and think about what God could have done. <laughs> let's just think about what he could have done at this moment. When, when humanity said, I don't want your vocation anymore, this God-given vocation, I want it for myself. I want to be the one reflecting myself onto creation. I want the worship from creation not, and not give it to you. I want to determine what's good and what's bad. I'm just telling you, if I was God, I'd be like, smite, and it would be over. <laughs> there would just be some serious smiting going on. I would just be smiting people left and right, like, fine, you ungrateful little brats. I don't need you anyway. Right? He could just blow the whole thing up. He could just blow the whole thing up and start over and be like, well, I'll try again. He could blow the whole thing up and not start over and be like, didn't need him to begin with, don't need him now. He could uh, not blow it up and just let it deteriorate into nothing, right? I'm just, I'm just saying, like, what? it seems like God has a decision here. It seems like he set this thing up to be really beautiful, and we screwed it up. I'm just saying, he kind of has a choice in what, what happens at this point, doesn't he? He kind of does a little bit of all of those things, <laughs> to be honest, as we go through the story. But what we find is that he is relentless in pursuing this ideal that he will not let it go. Then humans get worse. <laughs> humans get even worse. We see in Genesis, uh, we start to see this, this interesting thing where humans start doing horrible things, and then God responds at the end of it, when it's all said and done, responds with a promise. With a promise to say, I'm, I'm, I'm actually uh, promising that this is going to be okay and I'm going to bless you. And we, the first time we see this is in Genesis 6 where the Lord said, it says, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth. Right? This is leading up to the flood. It had just deteriorated. It was so bad. It was so bad. It was like it, humanity was just a shell of itself. Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had even made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. It got bad. It got real bad. So then, again, I'm just saying, I would blow it up. <laughs> if I'm running the show... It's over at that point. Like, I'd be like, I, we went through this already in the garden. I already had it worked out. You screwed that up. And now like, it's just getting worse by the day. But what does he do? 
We see in like two, three chapters later, we see he actually blesses Noah after the flood, and he says, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth, which is just a rehashing of his covenant to, Ab- or to Adam, and now he does it here again with Noah. Why, why, is, why are you still hanging on to this, God? <laughs> They've, they're so bad. These people are so bad, and now you're, oh, okay, all right, I guess, if you really want to. So then we move on. And then what happens? Oh, the Tower of Babel happens. Humanity, they've been saved. They get another shot. And now they're like, I know. I'm not known enough. I want more power, more prestige. I want to be known more than, than, than I normally am. So we're going to build super high towers so that the whole world knows who we are. And God's like... Man, are you can me? Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered all over the face of the whole earth, and that would be awful. But then what, is, what do we get right after this? We get the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis 12, the Lord says to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to lead the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So how does God respond to outright obedience? With unconditional grace. Just, I mean, there's no reason for it. Again, I wouldn't do it this way. If it's me, I would not handle I would not handle humanity the way that God is handling them now. He responds to this disobedience, this, um, this outright defiance, this, this um, revocation of vocation, <laughs> this, this, this thing where he's given humanity this great gift and they've just thrown it, thrown it back in his face. He responds to that by going, I'm going to give it back. I'm going to give it to you again, actually. I'm going to keep giving it to you over and over and over and over. He's relentless in this. He will have his people. God will have his people. There is no, there's nothing that God's people can do to stop him from having his people. It's almost paradoxical. It actually is a paradox, <laughs> as, as you see as you go throughout Scripture. It's this paradox that the very people that God is trying to save are the one, actually the one stop, trying to prevent it. God is relentless in his plans and he will not be thwarted. Even by our best efforts, he will have his beloved. Revealed. God's relentless plan for redemption. What, is it, what does redemption mean? What do we mean by redemption? Well, redemption can mean a couple things. Redemption can mean, um, especially in this story, redemption means uh, Freedom from slavery. So in, in a very real sense, but also in a spiritual, and by real I mean uh, practical, like the Israelites actually were enslaved by the Egyptians. But then also in a spiritual sense, we get this, this feeling that, oh, there's actually a slavery that the human heart is part of. That when, that when we gave up our, our vocation as human beings, something has now entrapped us. Something is, we're actually a slave to this thing now. It's what we call sin. I'm, I'm laying the groundwork for sin here. This is what sin is. 
Redemption looks like slavery, uh, freedom from slavery. It also looks like a return home. That there's this concept in, in the scriptures that home is that place that God has created you to be. And I'm not just talking about like a structure or a, or a building, but it's actually part of your identity. That you and I have an identity that is rooted in God that we're actually created to be part of and we're not there and God's looking to restore that. That process is called redemption. Let's just look at a couple of examples in this story. So we're just, we're just chugging along. Exodus 6, 6. This is the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt and they are, they're getting mad. They're getting mad because Moses is telling them like, hang on, God's going to help us. It's all going to work out. It's all going to be fine. And Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, is getting annoyed with the Israelites. And so he's starting, he, he makes them work harder and longer and, and it's getting worse. And God responds to that by saying, okay, Say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. He responds to them by saying, okay, I hear, I, I hear your cries. I'm going to get you out of there. Again, graciousness in the face of complaint. Justice in the face of oppression. Uh, redemption in the face of slavery. This is, this, this is, are you starting to get a feel for, I know a lot of this is review for a lot of us, but if we really put ourselves in it, we start to get this picture of the character of God and what his heart is and what his ways are, which is incredibly important for understanding the New Testament and especially Romans because this is, this is all assumed by Paul when he writes Romans. All of this is assumed by him. He's not giving us the, his backstory or what's in his mind, like what his whole history is. He just assumes that we all know this. Let's just look at the prophets. So then, Jeremiah, love Jeremiah. Here's the Israelites who are created. God has made these covenants now over and over and over with you know, Ab Noah, Abraham, David, over and over. God keeps saying, like, I promise you, you I am your God and you will be my people. You know, hero Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. He, he teaches them these prayers, and he says, look, I want you to be different than all the people around you, because really my goal is, and God is not shy about saying this. We saw it in the Abraham uh, covenant. He's not shy about saying this. The reason you are my people is to bless other people. I want the whole world. I want everybody. But I've chosen you, Israel, as my reflection, as my little mirrors, to go and get everybody else, right? I could just impose my will if I wanted to, but... You know, that's no fun. So I'm going to, you guys are going to be my ambassadors, if you will. You'll be my people on earth in order to draw in all the peoples of the earth. This is the point of Israel. This is why we get the Ten Commandments. This is why we get the 613 or whatever it is, other commandments. It's all to separate or to um, uh, create a unique people that's different from the people around them. Because right? the other kingdoms of the world are messed up. They're doing some bad things, and God's like, look, to reach them, you got to stand out. There's got to be something different about you. And so why does it matter that I can't eat certain meats that are killed in a certain way or whatever? Just because 
All of them are, I don't want you to. If you don't understand why God gave them all these weird laws, that's, that's the basically, that's it. I, don't, I want you to be different than all the people around you. Well, come the time of Jeremiah, and there's almost no difference between the Israelites and the kingdoms around them. There's, the line is so blurred now that you can't even tell the difference. They're doing bad things. They're like sacrificing children at the altar, the Israelites are. We see in the scriptures. They're, 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 they're worshiping other gods in bizarre and awful ways. And Jeremiah is like, stop doing it. <laughs> stop doing it. And if you don't stop doing it, that country over there, Babylon, is going to come in here and kick all your butts and kill us all, and it's going to be really bad. So just stop doing it. Can you just, just stop doing that? Well, what do they do? They, they don't like that. They basically tell Jeremiah to take a hike. But then Jeremiah was right, and God actually used the Babylonian empire to come in and wipe out Israel, and most were killed, and the ones who weren't were taken from their homes. And so now we get this concept of exile. And what does God do? He says, that was the last straw. We're not doing this anymore. Good luck. No, he doesn't say that. We should know that. We know this by now. Again, again, he says, but they did not. So that, this is Jeremiah 7 where Jeremiah is like proclaiming the things. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed their stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backward and not forward. And from the time your ancestors left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants and my prophets. This is God saying, please. But they didn't listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than even their ancestors did. But then later on in Jeremiah, we get what's called the new covenant. Jeremiah says this from the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. This is a common verse. We've probably, if you've been around the church any period of time, you've probably heard this. It's great for pointing to the New Testament and the, the language there is what Jesus used when he establishes the new covenant over the Lord's Supper and all that business. But just for a second, just zoom in on this. Pretend you don't know how this ends. And just think about where we've been up to this point the back and forth between God and his people. And now God says, I will put my law in your freaking mind and write it on your hearts. <laughs> I am so tired. I'm not asking you to obey anymore. The new covenant will not be me asking you to obey. In other words, all the other covenants have been, I'm going to do this, but I need you to obey me. And then we don't. Okay, let's try it again. I'm, uh, this is what I need you to do to enter into this relationship with me, to be my people, and then we screw it up. And, then, and now the new covenant says, oh, there's no asking you to obey anything. I'm going to write it on your freaking heart and put it in your mind so that everybody around you will just know. You'll just be like these little God people that run around where it's just like oozing out of you all the time. This is what my new covenant is going to look like. He says, I'll, I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to anyone, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. God responds to uh, 
injustice with justice. He responds to disobedience with grace and truth. He is relentless in this idea of what it means to be a human being. He will not let go of it. There is nothing you and I could do to, to stop that from happening. God is relentless in this. And his plan means freedom. His plan means a return home. His plan means the forgiveness of sins. This is redemption. This is how it looks. This is what redemption looks like. And finally, the story culminates with the revealing uh, of all these long-awaited promises. God's been making these promises, right, over and over and over. And what we see in Romans, finally, we get to Romans here. So this is Paul now. We're going to look at Romans 1, 1 through 7. And in Paul, we see that he sees this whole story comes and culminates in the person of Jesus. So that all of the, the promises, all of the, uh, the things that were um, hoped for, all of the ideals of what it means to be a human, all now come together in the person of Jesus. Let's read Romans 1, 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel of God. The go- what is the gospel of God? The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son. Who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David and who, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from the faith for his namesake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from our God and our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is good news to Paul. It's, it's as if... It's as if the people of Israel had for centuries, generations, just been sitting there going, how is this going to work out? Right? Like they're, 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 they're uh, passing on these traditions from one generation to the next over and over and over, and they're reciting them, and they know all these stories, all the background. It's all part of who they are. It's all their identity. But there's this lingering question, like, how is this actually going to play out? Because he's making promises that seem like we can't keep (laughs) over and over and over. So how are we supposed to, what's the end game here? And it's like this door has been slowly creaking open throughout human history, and and then Good Friday and Easter happens. And they say, and Paul especially goes, oh, that's how it happens. Oh, it's all, it all was about Jesus from the beginning. It all came down to, to Jesus and the person of Christ. And Paul calls this good news. He calls this the gospel of God. That the the whole of scripture can be boiled down to the person of Jesus. He calls the gospel of God. He says a few things about this gospel. He says, one, like I said, it's it's all, Jesus is all of God's promises kept in, in the form of a person, 
the ideal person, what I meant for humanity to be from the beginning, all comes down to Jesus. It's all the promises that I've ever made. And also, it's for everyone. It's for everyone. When he uses the term Gentile there, that is, look, there's going to be some controversial things in Romans, I'm just telling you. You should read along with us this summer. It'll be super fun. But I promise you, you will find passages, sections, maybe even whole chapters where you're like, I don't really like Paul, I don't think. it'll, It'll happen, I promise you. It happens to everybody. Most of the stuff we find controversial wasn't controversial to Paul. And a lot of the stuff that was controversial to Paul, we don't, you know, you know what I mean? We see it the opposite way, and this is one of them. When he says, the gospel of God is for Jews and Gentiles, that is an offensive statement to all of his Jewish brethren. I'm the, I'm a, I'm the chosen people. <laughs> our whole lives, our whole history has been about being different from them, and you're, now you're telling me like they just, they're just part of this now? We're just all in the same circle? I don't think so. That's a hugely controversial statement. But to Paul, this is good news. Why? Because it's a fulfillment of what God had been promising all along. All the way back to, to before there was such a thing as Jew and Gentile. Just humanity. This is what humanity looks like. And it is good news, friends, when, when he goes and declares that it, there's actually power in the proclamation of this good news. That lives get changed then by the proclamation of this good news. There's one word that I, I, would, I would use, Paul uses really, to summarize all of this. All of this from beginning to end, from creation story to all of the failings of humanity to all of God's responses to the culmination of Jesus. The whole story, there's a word that Paul uses, and it's not the word you would normally think of, and the word is righteousness. Righteousness, we often will, will associate with like moral behavior or oh, you do a bunch of things and then that's how you're righteous or, or something. The righteousness of God is this rich, deep word that Paul uses and again assumes that we all know that speaks to his faithfulness to all of his promises, that speaks to his determination and his relentlessness for the ultimate outcome, that speaks to his grace, that speaks to his, uh, his unwavering, perfect justice all the time. That's what righteousness means. Let's read uh, verses 16 and 17. This is basically Paul's thesis statement for the whole book of Romans. All, all of Romans comes back to this, these two verses. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power. It is the power. The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It's a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. From first to last is a, is a complicated sentence that there's some debate about, but most think it, it basically just means from first to last means uh, from God to human, that, that his faithfulness then is transmitted to humans. We get our faith from God, is, is what that's trying to, to say. And then the righteous will live by faith is a quote from Habakkuk, which is, uh, there's a lot wrapped in there that's, that's beautiful. But I, the faithfulness of God 
and everything that he's done uh, is no small thing, friends. I feel like sometimes I'm a dad of little kids, little toddlers, and I, if you had a camera, like just a hidden camera in our home, I would look like a madman. Most of the time I'm home by myself with my kids. I, it's, I mean, they're like, well, six, four, and two. And it's this constant thing of like, oh, no, don't do that, don't. Do, and then, no, you stop, no, don't. Like, don't stick the thing in the outlet. No, who told you to spill that? Don't put that on your face. Like, it's this constant, it's so frustrating, it's exhausting. I feel like when we read and listen to and know the story of Israel, it feels like God is like that with Israel. Do you know what I mean? Like, he's just like, no, I told you not to, oh, why, what are you doing? No, not you too, come on. I don't think that's actually true. I think that's a bad way to see the faithfulness of God. I have this red oak tree in our yard that's huge. I had an arborist tell me that it's over 120 years old, and it's, uh, it's huge. It towers over our house. The trunk is just gargantuous. Whenever I look at it, I always think of the root system. Can you imagine what the roots, like if you just like plucked it up out of the ground and just looked at like the root ball of it and like how far, I mean, some of the roots are probably huge and it probably stretches for, I mean, just ever. I can't, I can't even hardly, and the intricacy and how deep it goes. And what, I think this is a better picture of the faithfulness of God. That God's roots sit fixed. His intention is fixed. He is relentless in holding on to that. And he will not be, he will not be swayed. He will not be thwarted. He will not be moved. He will not be pushed around. He will be relentless for this plan for redemption. Man, that feels good. It feels good that I don't have to um, actually have, we talk about faith like it's sort of this um, quantifiable, and, and there's some Bible verses that, that lend, lend to this, but, but like it's this thing like, oh yeah, my faith is pretty low, or oh, my faith is increased by that, or, my, or like, oh, that person has no faith, or yeah, yeah I have a lot of faith. Or, you, you know what I mean? And I feel like that diminishes something major when, when talking about faith, and that is that the faithfulness of God is what we actually stand on. <laughs> it's just a matter of whether or not we re- realize it or not. It's, it's, just, it's not a matter of um, how, how much faith can I grab for myself so that I feel faithful, but rather it's a matter of being awakened to how faithful God is. Does that make sense? And so when he says the f- faith from first to last... He's saying, it all starts with my faith, God says. And look, I've proven it. Look at at the the righteousness of of all the history of humanity. That no matter what's been thrown at me, no matter what you guys have tried to do, my faithfulness wins out every time. And it's proven in the person of Jesus. This This is the gospel of God. This is what the book of Romans is about, friends. It's about the faithfulness of God and how true he's been for, forever. That is so, there's something so good about that. I, I mean, the, the fantasy football thing was a mistake. For sure. Not denying that at all. But let's face it. Like, I could make bigger mistakes. I have made bigger mistakes. We all have. 
there's something really beautiful and really good to know that uh, there's like a confidence that starts to build. Do you know what I mean? There's a confidence that starts to build where we say, even if I make mistakes, I won't, it doesn't change who God is. And I know that sounds like a Christian platitude or a card, you know, some sort of Hallmark card or something, but it's not, but if we look at the history of what God has done and what he says and how he does it, how he's done it, and what he says and how he says things are going to be, it, we start to realize, oh, this is real. He actually sees me in a different way. I'm actually known in a different way. His pursuit of me, his plan for me, his, the vocation that he's designed me to be is, is different than just me feeling good or, yeah, you know what I mean? I, I like knowing that God is unchanging and, and, and faithful. And I hope that this summer, I hope that today, but also this summer that you'll engage with me on this in reflecting on how faithful God is in seeing that regardless of our circumstances, we can stand on the foundation of the one who's proven himself to be faithful time and time and time again. And I bet that when we press into that just a little bit, even just a little bit, what, we, what happens is, our, as we would say, our faith will grow. That when we realize how faithful God is, our faith actually is increased by that. Let's stand and pray and worship and, and worship and sing songs about God's faithfulness. Lord Jesus, we give thanks to you. We say uh, thank you for being uh, the new Adam, as it says in Romans. Thank, thank you for being the, um, the one who bore our sins, the one who... Uh, who is faithful to the covenants of God. Thank you for being the one who was um, uh, before the foundations of the earth. The one who's so faithful that we can actually um, rest in, into you with questions, with hardships, with doubts, that we can actually uh, uh, sink into your identity and then call that our identity. Your, your word says that we are, uh, that, that our identity is in Christ. And I want to know that my identity is in Christ. I want to know that the truest, best things about who I am is because of you, Jesus. Yeah, I want to know these things. I want it to be, I want it to be on the tip of my tongue and in the front of my mind all the time, that all my decisions, all of my um, actions, everything I think, it comes from, it starts from and ends in a place that says, I am loved by the most faithful one who has ever lived. Yeah, we love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.